an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everybody. So today we're going to uh, close out uh, Black History Month for our Sunday programs with with a somewhat in-depth look at the life of uh, Harriet Tubman, who's uh, uh, within the next few years, hopefully, uh, uh, will become much better known to the American public as she uh, goes on the uh, $20 bill. Uh, I should have had this page turned to that, but there it is. There's a facsimile of what that's going to look like. So that's uh, something to look forward to. And I, I'm sure you already agree with that. But hopefully, uh, when when we're finished uh, with our uh, look at her life today, you'll you'll be even more enthused about uh, the fact that that's looming on the horizon for us. Uh, One quick side note, uh, very relevant uh, before we get into Harriet Tubman, because I can't really uh, have too much of a diversion. Her life was so rich, it's going to take all of our time this morning to do it justice. But uh, as as happens so often, as I'm reading this morning's paper, uh, lo and behold, there's a piece in here. about this woman, Henrietta Wood, who uh, it's a story that was just dug up about her, how she uh, sued her enslaver for reparations and won way back in 1870. It was uh, a situation where she uh, uh, was actually uh, taken to Cincinnati by her owner at the time and, and legally freed in 1848. Uh, but then uh, uh, in, uh, at some point, uh, not too, too far down the road from there, I guess it was 1853, uh, they, because she had been in Kentucky, and they lured her across the river from Cincinnati into Covington, apprehended her, and re-enslaved her. Uh, and then uh, she ended up uh, being uh, shipped off to Texas following the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and wasn't freed until a year after the conclusion of the Civil War. So that was the basis of her suit for reparations and she won, she won the case. Uh, So having read that this morning is, I'm I'm, uh, preparing to talk about Harriet Tubman. I was like, wow, (laughs) 
this is unbelievable. So uh, page A24 of today's Plain Dealer for anybody that wants to uh, read the whole thing. So with that, uh, the best way for us to start the, uh, the life review of, of Harriet Tubman is to emphasize what makes it so relevant for us as uh, Mahayana Buddhists. And uh, that, to my mind, uh, based upon the fact that I think Harriet Tubman is uh, perhaps one of our greatest examples of uh, Jizo Bodhisattva. The subtitle underneath Jizo Bodhisattva, uh, Jan Chosen Bay's wonderful book about this Bodhisattva, uh, gives a description of, of the role of Jizo. So Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin uh, is the Bodhisattva of compassion. Manjushri is the uh, Bodhisattva of, of uh, great wisdom. Jizo is the guardian of children, travelers, and other voyagers. So, I mean, this is Harriet Tubman. In fact, I'm surprised uh, that Tygen Dan Layton, uh, I think this was his first book uh, that was just a book of his rather than a translation of, of a Buddhist text. Uh, it was originally uh, published under the title of Bodhisattva archetypes, and uh, the folks at uh, at Wisdom uh, Publications, when they reprinted it, they uh, decided that wasn't a very good marketing title, so they retitled it "Faces of Compassion." And and what this text is is it looks at the uh, major Bodhisattvas. And then Tygen uh, lists or historical, for the most part contemporary, but some going back further in time, exemplars of, those, of, of these bodhisattvas. Because uh, a core teaching in Mahayana, in Zen, is that uh, just like Buddha, uh, Buddha only exists within each and every one of us. It's not a statue up on a, an altar somewhere. And the same is true for bodhisattvas. So Jizo, along with all the other bodhisattvas, their existence is based upon uh, individuals, uh, and they don't have to be Buddhist, uh, not, not by any stretch of the imagination, but individuals who, who are carrying forward and embodying uh, the the qualities of that particular bodhisattva. And it's kind of surprising to me that for Jizo, uh, Tygen does not include uh, Harriet Tubman. But then this text goes back, I don't know, 25 years. And I think, frankly, uh, she was not as well known as she is today. So that probably accounts for uh, her absence from here, because I think, along with Harriet Tubman, another figure who I think should have been in in here is uh, is Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. 
since Jizo is a guardian of children, uh, you know, I think he's he and Harriet Tubman, if if Tigan ever does a revision on this, they need, need to be included in that chapter. So that's just kind of a backdrop as, as we uh, begin our look at, at Harriet Tubman's life and how she she was a guardian, certainly of travelers, other voyagers, and children factored into that as well. In fact, later in her life, she would even adopt uh, a young girl. So, uh, but and we'll get to that at, at some point here in our survey of her life. Uh, but, yeah, just to summarize, uh, her life before we get into the details, you know, she she was repeatedly putting her life and liberty at risk to rescue others. After she made her escape, uh, she kept going back time after time after time again to bring others out. Initially focused on family members, but eventually starting to spread out because uh, by the time she made her last trip uh, back down to, to Maryland, and these were all uh, uh, the points of origin for all of these uh, 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 trips along the Underground Railroad, was the eastern shore of Maryland, which was where she was a slave. And her final trip down was in the year 1860. In fact, uh, in the course of that final uh, trip back north with her group of, of, uh, of uh, uh, former slaves that she was uh, bringing to freedom and a new life up north, uh, Lincoln would be elected president of the United States. And as we'll see, then her activity shifted to be becoming a supporting uh, uh, presence for the uh, Union Army during during the course of the Civil War. So she uh, she's best known for her work uh, on the Underground Railroad, bringing, like I said, 70 people or somewhere uh, right in the vicinity of that number. Uh, to their free freedom, either in Canada, St. Catharines in Ontario, or uh, Auburn, New York. And some of them initially she was bringing to Philadelphia. But because of especially the Fugitive Slave Act, which was enacted in 1850, and her, her work on the Underground Railroad began in 49, no, and, and I think this came up uh, uh, during one of our previous Sunday talks. Uh, no escaped slave who remained in the United States was truly free and safe because they could be recaptured again. And the Fugitive Slave Act uh, meant that even if they were living in a state like New York, uh, a, a state that had abolished slavery, then they could still be apprehended and, uh, and taken back to, to the uh, state where they, uh, their point of origin, where they had escaped from. 
So that's the reason why St. Catherine's, Ontario enters into the picture here with reference to the Underground Railroad. Uh, you know, Harriet Tubman and others who worked on the Underground Railroad realized that after all the work of, of helping these slaves escape up north, uh, the only way that they could really be free would be to have them uh, leave the country and, uh, and relocate into Canada. So as a result, St. Catharines became uh, a major hub for freed slaves. And there were a number of them that, uh, that ended up relocating there. So, so Harriet, uh, you know, she's best known for her work on the Underground Railroad, risking her life time and time again in rescuing others. Uh, but then she also got involved uh, working with and for the Union Army during the Civil War. And then after that, uh, she would also become involved in the, the women's suffrage movement. And she had some other uh, things she got involved with as well. In fact, the last project she took on near the end of her life, uh, based in uh, her, where she had settled in Auburn, New York, uh, on property right next to her home, she had erected a, uh, a home for the aged to care for, uh, for uh, indigent uh, blacks who, who needed what we would term nursing home care uh, and, uh, and of course couldn't, couldn't afford it. So she took her, her life's mission of caring for those in need and her final project became that. And along the way, you know, the skills that she uh, manifested in all these different activities, you know, they've been listed as, uh, as being an entrepreneur, a nurse, a baker, a fundraiser, a philanthropist, a wife and a mother. So she was a very multi-talented individual. Uh, just briefly to sketch her own family ancestry, uh, her grandmother, Modesty, arrived on a slave ship in the colony of Maryland. And, uh, and uh, you know, many such slaves at that time, late uh, 18th, early 19th century, uh, were kidnapped from towns and villages from Western Africa, uh, uh, present day countries of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Ghana. Uh, and just to kind of briefly sketch out uh, the horrors of, of slavery, uh, above and beyond, you know, the obvious ones of, of completely uh, uh, having all, all your freedom and liberty stolen from you. But, uh, but rape was an integral part of American slavery. 
enslaved babies were as good as gold. So one of the reasons why uh, impregnating uh, females who are slaves was because it was like creating uh, an asset, a financial asset. And that's exactly how they were seen. Simply commodities. Your wealth would increase with the number of slaves. And a baby, you don't have to go uh, to a slave market and invest uh, hundreds of dollars in buying a slave. It just created uh, as, as a gift to you. So, uh, uh, but one interesting thing here is that slave owners sometimes use their wills to emancipate slaves. Of course, a well-known example of that was George Washington. You know, when he died, he had written into his will that his slaves would be set free. One of the kind of underlying motives behind that, you know, we hear that and we think, well, it's really magnanimous of them. It's too bad they couldn't have just freed them outright right there on the spot, but, uh, but at least they're arranging for that. But a lot of times, you know, those provisions weren't carried out. And the purpose they served was that it would provide an incentive for slaves to, to uh, work extra hard and not cause trouble, hoping that you know, they could be set free uh, by their owner as a reward for their faithful service. And sometimes it worked that way. Sometimes it was, uh, it was uh, they thought that uh, such arrangements had been made, but uh, even if, and even if the will had been uh, established that way, uh, if the heirs of the estate, uh, typically the children, of course, uh, wanted to hang on to the slaves, they did so. You know, the law was not going to enforce uh, any rights that slaves had because they had no rights. So they were really completely at the mercy in every way, shape, and form of their owner. Uh, Harriet's father and mother, who were the second generation uh, of slaves in the U.S., they were born around 1785, and both of them lived fairly long lives, probably somewhat uh, thanks to Harriet uh, getting them out of the South. Uh, her father died in 1871. Uh, and her mother lived to 1880. And Harriet uh, also had a pretty long life in spite of all her hardships, uh, especially for this time, point in time when life expectancies were much, much lower, even for, for, for uh, the white citizenry, let alone uh, slaves. Uh, Harriet's dates are 1822 to 1913. And another unusual aspect of her family was that her parents, uh, that union lasted for many, many decades throughout their, their life. And that was unusual. 
typically uh, slave couples would be separated. Children would be separated. There was no sense, it seems, to, uh, to any effort to keep families together. Or to the extent that happened, it was, it was the exception rather than the rule. Again, it, they were commodities and uh, not treated in a, in a fashion that would, would have uh, conceded that they, their humanity. They just weren't perceived that way. Uh, but her father actually uh, uh, had a skill that, uh, that meant that he did receive preferential treatment. He was a timber inspector and was very good at it. And that was a way that, uh, that slave owners, that was one of the ways that they could really increase their revenue stream if they had the ability to harvest timber. That was a nice uh, supplemental income for them. And her father uh, was, uh, had a skill that, uh, that could allow them to, to greatly increase their, their income. So that also helped to facilitate their staying together because he wasn't as, as apt to get sold off because of that skill he had. Another typical practice with slaves and Harriet Tubman experienced this uh, was that they would be hired out to neighboring farms. So this was another way of generating revenue because a lot of times uh, a, a plantation uh, might have more slaves than they could really put to effective use. Uh, so they would then rent their services out to, to someone else uh, and, and generate revenue in that way. So they were always susceptible to having that happen. And a lot of these farmers were very cash strapped. So this was also uh, an additional revenue stream that could keep them solvent. Short of just selling the slaves, which of course that happened with some regularity as well, but they could also uh, lease them out. Uh, in terms of Harriet's family, she had eight siblings and her oldest sister was sold to a Mississippi slave trader in 1825 when she was only 16 years old and she'd never see her parents again. She disappeared uh, as far as her family was concerned. And that was fairly common as well. You know, there was no way to, to keep track of anybody. So once they were sold off, chances are they were completely uh, uh, disconnected for the rest of their lives. Uh, and a lot of the slaves that were sold from a state like Maryland were sold into the deep south. So it wasn't like they were sold to a, a neighboring uh, community where they could still stay in touch because of the increasing importance of cotton as a crop in the deep South and the fact that slave labor was really a driving force behind 
the cultivation of cotton meant that the southern states were really in the market for slaves. And a lot of, that's why a lot of slaves from states like Maryland ended up when they would be sold, it would be into the deep south, states like Alabama or Mississippi. Uh, and one thing that I guess I hadn't really thought through, and I, I've uh, read, you know, the narrative life of Frederick Douglass, I've read accounts of slavery, but the fact that uh, the impact it has on young children, and Harriet's a good example of this, uh, because her mother, Harriet's mother, uh, still had her obligation, she couldn't really devote much, if any, time to being a, a mother. So by the time Harriet was only four or five years old, she had a couple of younger siblings and she was responsible for their care. So they had no childhood. And it only gets worse from there. I mean, it, it was only a short period of time where Harriet could care for her uh, younger siblings because uh, then, she got before she even turned six, she was rented out to a nearby farmer. And here she is, five, six years old, and among her duties were muskrat trapping, housekeeping, and weaving. You know, so her childhood was was over. Yeah, she couldn't even remember it, she was so young. Uh and the, the muskrat trapping, you know, her, her owner would set the traps and then she'd go around checking them, collecting the dead rodents and bringing them, bringing them back to the farm. Uh, and, you know, like, like any kid, you know, they're, they're susceptible to coming down with diseases, especially at that era when you, we didn't have vaccinations or treatments. So uh, <clears throat> while she was working at this farm, she came down with measles. But her owner didn't see this as a reason to excuse her from her work. So she was expected to continue to work even though she's got measles. And part of that work involves wading through frigid waters to check on the muskrat traps. So this is part of this country's history. It's important for us to recognize. Uh, but ultimately, you know, they had no choice but to send her back to, uh, to her mother's farm uh, so that she could be nursed back to health. It finally reached the point where she couldn't, just physically was unable to, to do the work anymore. Uh, but then once she did become healthy again, over the next several years, she'd be rented out constantly to multiple people and typically would be forced to work like 24 hour days because at night uh, her, her owner uh, had a, an infant and she'd be required to tend to the owner's baby. And then by day, she's now she's moved to, to uh, domestic duties where she's cleaning the house and caring for the baby. So she's never really has any time to herself. She's on call 24 seven. Uh, 
And eventually these conditions became intolerable to her and she decided to run away. So she's just a kid and she, she makes her first uh, escape, but it wasn't a serious escape. She just needed, it was like uh, taking uh, a vacation. And sometimes this, this took place with slaves uh, where, and in Harriet's case, she lived among the livestock for five days. And then, uh, you know, she reached the point, as was common with slaves, where uh, where starvation and thirst would force them to return. But this was a very uh, uh, important, impactful moment in her life, uh, this first escape, even if it was so brief. Uh, and the work that she became involved with now was uh, was uh, with harvesting flax, which was uh, one of the main crops in Maryland. Uh, and its use uh, was to be transformed into linen at the New England textile mills. And from there, you know, uh, one, once it was, uh, uh, turned into linen, it would go into uh, the manufacture of things like grain bags and wagon covers and sails for ships. And this was really hard, backbreaking work. Uh, but what it did, it caused Harriet's body to really get transformed into this ultra strong, you know, it was described as a machine of muscle and strength. And she's still a kid. Uh, but she preferred working outside to, to the domestic duties in the house. Uh, so as, and as she's entering her teen years, uh, a serious uh, accident occurred, which would impact her for the rest of her life. Uh, she was sent on an errand uh, to a store and an overseer uh, at or just outside of the store uh, was apprehending a runaway. And he, this overseer picked up a two pound weight and, and threw it in the direction of the runaway, but instead it struck Harriet in the head, fracturing her skull. But of course, as I described with the measles, you know, she was returned to the fields immediately afterward. But then ultimately, because she kept passing out, she started having seizures and the, this would continue throughout her life. Uh, again, she ended up going back to her mother's farm and her owner started attempting to sell her. Uh, and she remained in her sick bed for months after this accident. Uh, it, it's conjectured that this head injury likely induced a form of epilepsy. Uh, but she ultimately recovered, regaining her former strength. Uh, and then to turn back to her father, this timber inspector, uh, his owner had promised to set him free at the age of 45 and miraculously kept his word. So he did set him free when Harriet was 19 years old. Uh, but, 
and this is an important lesson about uh, about slavery. Even though he was free, his wife, uh, Harriet's mom, and his children, including Harriet, were obviously still slaves. It had no impact on the rest of his family whatsoever. Uh, and during this time frame, two more of Harriet's sisters were sold out of state into the Deep South. Uh, and then in the uh, early 1840s, so Harriet's around 20, early 20s, uh, she met John Tubman, a free man of mixed race who lived near uh, the place where Harriet's father took up residence, still in Maryland. So uh, they ultimately got married, but did not have any children. And uh, Harriet ultimately struck a deal with her owner, wherein she would pay him an annual fee of 50 to $60. And in return, she'd be allowed to select her own work assignments. So she wasn't just uh, able to be, you know, leased out to anybody for anything. She started to establish at a cost uh, some, some uh, power over what she was going to do. Uh, but, you know, she uh, wouldn't always be living on the same farm as her, her new husband. Uh, so now we come to the point where she, uh, we're setting the stage for, for her escape. In 1849, so now she's 27 years old. Her owner died, which left his wife to try and pay off all of his debts, which, which were significant. Selling off slaves was a primary means for doing this, and that wasn't uncommon. Uh, and Harriet determined, because of that fact, that uh, now was the time that she needed to make her escape before she got sold off into a deep south. Maryland, of course, is a much, for, much shorter journey to a city like Philadelphia, which was a popular stopping off point for, for runaway slaves. If she had been sold off into Mississippi, Alabama, uh, it would have been much more challenging to have uh, made her escape. Uh, and she joined with her two brothers. So it was the three of them that made that initial escape. But her two brothers uh, had second thoughts uh, after they left, and they ended up returning and forcing her to return with them as well. So uh, she did go back with them, uh, but she, in short order, she was back off again, this time by herself. You know, she wasn't gonna be turned back ever, ever again. She learned her lesson there. Uh, so this was her first real experience with the Underground Railroad. Uh, 
a woman she encountered, and speculation has it that this woman was likely a Quaker, offered her assistance and put her in touch with others who could also help her on her journey north. And she was being ferried along on what had come to be known as the Underground Railroad, which was a loose connection of safe homes, businesses, barns, and other structures. Uh, very loose connection because you couldn't, you had to be undercover. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, it would be too easy for, uh, for people to be able to follow the network if they, if they had knowledge of it in any detail and uh, reapprehend slaves and take them back. Uh, and these stations along the railroad were rather prevalent throughout Maryland and Delaware. You know, the, the, the trail they would be taking to get up into Philadelphia. Uh, but of course, this Underground Railroad didn't originate with Harriet Tubman. It had already been pretty well established going back to the 1830s. So it had been around for close to uh, 20 years by the time Harriet started traveling it. And those who helped fugitives on the railroad became known as conductors. With others, who would also play a role in terms of donating food and clothing. So there was a whole network, uh, Sangha, if you will, that formed around these stations to provide assistance to runaways. Uh, and one thing that kind of differentiated Harriet from other travelers on this railroad was the fact she was a woman. Most runaways were younger men. One of the reasons why there weren't many women was because most women did have children. And to, to travel with children uh, was made the likelihood of recapture increase dramatically. So the fact if a woman did have children, they tended to keep her tied to her her farm plantation, just for that fact alone. So Harriet had this freedom and the ability to keep going back time and time again because she was childless. <coughs> and of course, probably goes without saying, uh, these journeys were pretty much all undertaken by night. So they would hunker down during the day and then uh, travel by night, which of course, you know, this is, uh, there were no uh, lights once the sun went down, it was dark. Uh, so it, it, it could be kind of frightening. Uh, so she, she arrives in Philadelphia on her own and immediately upon getting there, you know, she decides she wouldn't leave her family and friends in bondage. She'd find a way to rescue them. So she starts thinking about them immediately. 
at this time, Philadelphia was a major port city with a, uh, with a uh, large and well-established free black community because uh, runaway slaves from all across the South were, were uh, arriving in Philadelphia and many of them would stay there. So in 1849, when Harriet arrived there, uh, it's estimated that there were about 20,000 free blacks in the city of Philadelphia. And while they were stationed at the bottom of the economic ladder, there was opportunity and black entrepreneurship laced the small streets of the city where men and women sold fruits, vegetables, and oysters. So they could uh, begin to, to exercise their freedom in, in ways that uh, would allow them to, uh, to earn their keep. And as a result, there was a growing black middle class that started to get established. Uh, but for Harriet, unlike Frederick Douglass, for example, Harriet was illiterate. So this really impeded her ability to, to attain a position where she'd be capable of earning a higher wage. So she would uh, uh, take on low paying domestic work and slave catchers were always on the prowl. They knew that Philadelphia was, was uh, a major destination for these runaway slaves. Uh, and like I suggested in 1850, with the passage enactment of the Fugitive Slave Law, uh, it just made it all the more uh, easy for them to, to uh, go to a, a city like Philadelphia and reapprehend these, these uh, runaways. So with, uh, with the United States becoming uh, more and more problematic as, as, a, uh, as a place where runaways could settle, you know, the, the railroad extended its tracks, so to speak, uh, into Canada. Uh, and Harriet, uh, recognizing this, she began to contemplate a move to Canada. But first, uh, she, she determined to save her niece and her niece's two children. So she goes back to the eastern shore of Maryland, accomplishes this, gets them settled into Philadelphia, and then makes the decision now she's going to go rescue her entire family, returning to Baltimore sometime in early 1851. And her intention was on this trip, among those she would bring back would be her uh, husband, John Tubman. But, uh, but she, then she uh, discovered that he had actually remarried a free black woman. So that put the kibosh on that, uh, which, which was somewhat devastating to her. But on her next trip, she made her, her she came, came away with her biggest haul. She had a group of 11 people that she brought back, uh, 11 men and women. And this time her, she set, set out with her ultimate destination being Canada. It was not Philadelphia. So the journey probably led through Philadelphia, but then uh, they would 
take a train into New York City, then proceed on from there to either Albany or Rochester, which would be the final point from which they would uh, uh, strike out into across the Canadian border. Uh, and there's a reference, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, recalls helping a group of 11 runaways at this, in this time frame. So the strong conjecture is he played a role in this particular uh, 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 group that Harriet assisted in, in escaping. Uh, and of course, by now, Frederick Douglass is, is extremely well known. His, uh, his uh, uh, famous book, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, was published in 1845. So uh, he was uh, uh, the best known of the, uh, the runaway slaves who, who had a, a attained their freedom. Uh, so Harriet takes her group of 11, up into St. Catherine, Catherine's in Ontario. And, um, and St. Catherine's was kind of like Philadelphia, a lot of free blacks, but they were at the lower end of the uh, economic scale. So they were, you know, gradually trying to, to work their way up the ladder. And, uh, and at this point now, Harriet establishes an annual routine that she would follow throughout the decade of the 1850s, where she's working during the summers to save as much money as possible. And then during the fall, she would travel back to Maryland to save another group of runaways. Uh, by 1854, she'd already made at least five trips back to the Eastern shore. And by this point, she'd rescued close to 30 people. 30 of the uh, nearly 70 that she would ultimately rescue by, by 1860. Uh, and ultimately she made this journey more than a dozen times. So it's phenomenal really phenomenal. The fact that, uh, you know, she could have on any, uh, any of these trips, she could have said, well, that, that's it. Uh, it's time for me to settle down and, uh, and enjoy life. But she kept putting herself at risk because on any of those trips back South, she could have been apprehended and sold and right back into slavery. Uh, In 1857, she was finally able to bring her parents up north. And by this point in time, both of her parents were in their 70s. Uh, but she got them up to St. Catharines and got them safely reunited with uh, their children, those who had not been sold off to the Deep South. And, uh, and once she had gotten her parents, you know, she started, you know, shifting her attention from rescuing the enslaved to sustaining her family. So now she starts focusing energies on raising money and resources. Uh, and she came to realize at this point in time that she could raise funds simply by telling her story. 
So throughout 58 and 59, she was regularly traveling across New England, speaking at anti-slavery events, kind of following the same, a similar model to what Fred, Frederick Douglass had done. And among her many fans that she established at this time was a well-known senator of New York, William Seward. Uh, and this senator had inherited a farm from his father-in-law in Auburn, New York, and he wanted to give it to Harriet. So he ended up, it was a seven acre farm and uh, he uh, uh, offered it to Harriet for, for a total of $1,200 and he allowed her to mortgage the house with extremely flexible payments a $25 down payment and $10 quarterly payments, which would work out if he did the math to being an interest-free 30-year mortgage. So uh, uh, during this time frame, when she's uh, on the speaking uh, circuit, uh, she also uh, met and became friendly with John Brown. And they would uh, have a number of uh, communications between them. She was uh, really a supporter of his, whereas someone like Frederick Douglass kind of uh, was put off by, uh, by Brown's uh, tactics. Uh, Harriet supported him. Uh, so we get to 1860, and as I previously mentioned, uh, 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 that marked her final trip to Maryland uh, over, during the election in November of that year. So that uh, uh, when she uh, returned to, uh, to Canada, she now organized the Fugitive Aid Society of St. Catharines to offer financial support to fugitives who found their way to Canada. So she turned her efforts uh, into that direction. And, but several members of her family uh, moved to her new home in Auburn, New York. So they left Canada to come down to Auburn and stay with her there. So at this point, she was now splitting her time between St. Catharines and Auburn. Uh, but then we get into her work during the Civil War. And uh, a couple of points to make in that regard is that, uh, you know, as I think probably many of you are aware, uh, you know, Lincoln was very cautious uh, because he, he didn't want to lose border states to the Confederacy. So he was very careful about not uh, impeding the continuance of slavery in those states. There was a Union general who declared that all of the enslaved who made their way to his camp would be free. This was early on in the Civil War. It made sense to him. Uh, but Lincoln you know, countermanded that. He didn't want to go down that road yet. That would change. But early on, you know, he was he wasn't ready for that. Uh, early on, you know, he was really committed to to seeing this war as as first first of all uh, war to reunite the nation 
And in order to do that, he, like I said, felt the need to assure himself of retaining border states, preventing them from defecting to the Confederacy, because there were a number of them. Uh, and initially, in a similar vein, Lincoln refused to allow black men to fight for the Union Army. It wouldn't be until 1862 that he, he relented there. And even then, at that, uh, he would only do that when a dire need for additional manpower made it necessary. That wasn't uh, uh, a course of action that he, he really wanted to take. Again, for, for same same reasons. Uh, so in the spring of 1862, Harriet uh, gets involved in, in working on behalf of the Union Army. Uh, she uh, travels to, to Beaufort, South Carolina uh, to work for the Union behind the enemy lines, uh, working as a scout, as a spy, uh, and then uh, shifted to assisting troops by handing out much needed Northern donations. Uh, so because of both her race and her gender, uh, she ended up uh, finding herself tasked with largely domestic duties rather than the intelligence gathering that she was initially uh, 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 interested in and, and was initially assigned to. Uh, she, as part of her entrepreneurship uh, capabilities that I made mention of in the beginning, uh, she received a $200 grant from the government to set up a wash house where freed women could earn a little money by washing the clothing of Union soldiers. And they would also gather to perform other work like sewing and cooking. So they were providing support to troops in this fashion. And at this time, Harriet starts to, to shift into nursing the sick and consoling the dying, more of a caregiving role. And this would continue for quite some period of time. Important to note in this regard, just a, a civil war, uh, point of, of uh, information that more men would die of disease than bullets during the war. Uh, things like yellow fever, cholera, dysentery. So, uh, and, and in addition to caring for the soldiers, uh, Harriet also uh, would bake goods and sell them for cash. Uh, hiring freedmen to sell her food throughout the camps. So she'd be nursing the sick by day and baking at night. Uh, kind of a carryover from this 24-7 uh, she was accustomed to early in life. This stayed with her, uh, only now it was in service to other people. It wasn't because a slave owner was, uh, was uh, commanding it, but she was doing it uh, very freely and willingly, because this was uh, this was her calling, as far as she was concerned. This was her driving force. Uh, one time, she was able to actually get involved as as a scout, spy, 
uh, was in helping to lead a successful raid on a Confederate outpost from a, a Union gunboat. And uh, in the fall of that year, 1863, she received a leave to return to New York to check on her family. And then the next year in June of 64, she received a furlough to travel first to New York City and then to Boston. Uh, and while she was in New England, her health took a turn for the worse, forcing her to prolong her furlough. And when she returned to duty, rather than going all the way to South Carolina where her uh, uh, assignment had been pr prior to that, uh, some people she knew were able to arrange for her to uh, to set up in Virginia, where she worked in ho in uh, uh, hospitals for the troops there. And upon the war's end, she continued to nurse soldiers in Virginia, at a hospital for black soldiers. And in the summer of '65, so some months after the. Uh, uh, conclusion of the Civil War, she traveled to D.C. to confront the Surgeon General about the fact that Black soldiers were dying at a rate two and a half times that of white soldiers. The inequality of, of the quality of care that was being provided. And so she provided a voice, a force for, for trying to remedy that. Uh, and then another really uh, disturbing incident in her, in her life. In October of 1865, she caught a train from Philadelphia to New York with a half fare ticket, which was a benefit that was given to veterans for their service. The conductor refused to accept her ticket, telling her to move to the smoker car, which was the one right behind the, uh, the coal burner uh, filled with smoke. Uh, but she wasn't inclined to do that. Uh, she was kind of a, a Rosa Parks uh, <laughs> response to that. She wasn't going to move. So this guy, and she's, remember, she's she's built. She's pretty strong. She's muscular. So he was, it became clear to him he wasn't going to get her to move. He, he wasn't going to be able to do it, but he uh, gets two more conductors to help him. And in the course of of uh, relocating her, they break her arm and several of her ribs just to get her to uh, to move to the smoker car. And in Auburn, there was soon a constant stream of injured, orphaned, and destitute souls showing up on Harriet's doorstep. Uh, you know, by she's just kind of like locally well known. She was. Uh, she was the caregiver. This was her mission. And she could never turn anyone away. Uh, in 1869, uh, a woman, Sarah Bradford, uh, uh, arrangements were made since Harriet was illiterate, uh, that Sarah would write her life story. And Harriet was supposed to receive $1,200 from the sales of that book. But uh, while she did receive some money, it was never uh, you know, close to, to the proceeds that she had been promised. Uh, and then in March of 69, she was married to, uh, to a Nelson Davis, who uh, at this point, Harriet's 47, and Nelson was about half her age. 
And this marriage would last nearly 20 years until Nelson's death. Because uh, Nelson had, had tuberculosis from the time he first showed up at uh, Harriet's home in Auburn. Uh, and for, for the next decade, you know, this, this farm in Auburn was really the center of her life. They raised chickens, ducks, and pigs, and grew fruits and vegetables. Uh, they even, and this is, again, part of her entrepreneurship and service, uh, they even contracted with the city of Auburn to collect garbage. Uh, and later in life, she became a devoted member of Auburn's uh, AME, Zion Church. And in 1874, so Harriet is now 52 years old, uh, she and her husband Nelson adopt a baby girl, which I mentioned early on. Uh, 14 years later in 1888, Nelson dies. And now uh, with his death, Harriet turns her attention to reform work. And she's in her 60s now, mid 60s. Uh, she, and she begins advocating for women's rights. Uh, she traveled across New York and New England to make appearances on behalf of herself and the National Women's uh, Suffrage Association, which had been founded by Susan B. Anthony. Harriet's work with women's rights groups became more difficult as the racial politics of white women suffragists left no place for black women's participation. So this became an issue, I know, not just for Harriet, but for other uh, Black uh, women who were initially uh, very enthusiastic about the suffragist movement. Blacks would end up forming their own organizations. And in 1896, the National Association of Colored Women was founded. Harriet was asked to serve as a featured speaker at their first meeting. And, uh, and then her final project, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, because at this point she finally gained some financial security, uh, part of which was it took her decades to finally get uh, uh, approved her, the pension that she had earned from her work in the uh, Union Army. Uh, part of that, the fact that that finally became available to her was because she was uh, clearly entitled to a widow's benefits from her husband Nelson's pension. So along with that, they finally uh, started uh, giving her back pay from her military service plus an ongoing pension. So finally, for the first time in her life, she had some financial security. And uh, with this, she decided to, to build a home and hospital for the poor and aged. And she, uh, toward that end, she bought a 25 acre lot adjacent to her property and began a fundraising campaign. Uh, and in 1908, the Harriet Tubman Home for Aged and Indigent Negroes was opened. Uh, which operated until the early 1920s. So it was around for 15 or so years. Uh, and even by the time it opened, I mean, she was already uh, uh, elderly and failing health. So she was no longer playing an active role in it. In fact, she would end her life 
uh, as a resident at this home for the age. She con contracted pneumonia and died on March 10th of 1913 at the age of 91. And then one last note, uh, in 1944, the U.S. Maritime Commission recognized Harriet's service to the military by the naming of the SS Harriet Tubman. So she had a Liberty ship named for her. And of course, the moniker that was given to her that, uh, that she's uh, often referred to as is uh, the Moses of her people, because she really did play that role, uh, leading her people from slavery to, uh, to the promised land of, of uh, the Northern US and, and into Canada. Uh, so today, if you, if you go to Auburn, New York, there's the Harriet Tubman National Historical Park there. So, I, there's one closing comment I wanted to, to make. Yeah, but I'm not going to do that, at least not today. Uh, but just a real quick uh, note, because it'll have an impact on some future talks, uh, uh, at least within the next few weeks. If you'll recall, uh, uh, maybe a month ago, uh, I spent a Sunday morning talk talking about a a deep dive into suffering that I did on the internet, just looking at Wikipedia and other things from a non-Buddhist perspective. You know, what what is the world at large out there make of suffering? And one thing that that turned me on to was this book called Suffering, uh, Sociological Introduction. So I ordered it. I'm uh, coming down the home stretch with it. And wow. <laughs> I think we're going to be uh, uh, pulling some some things from this to to build some talks from, uh, and you know there's uh, there's really no no mention per se of of Buddhism in there, so it's not about Buddhist notions of suffering. It's just about suffering and social suffering, like slavery, like other forms of discrimination, they're still with us today and uh, kind of on the upsurge. So uh, it's, it's something that we need to certainly be aware of and be prepared to take action with. So it's, uh, I'm grateful that, uh, that I encountered the reference to the book and am finding it to be uh, pretty impactful. So I'll certainly look forward to sharing that uh, in coming weeks. Just kind of pulling little segments out and building Dharma talks around them. Should be interesting. So that's kind of a survey of, of Harriet Tubman. I wasn't sure I'd be able to get it all done, but because uh, it was such a rich life. And it, it's uh, embedded in that life as you know, the, all that ancient twisted karma 
that that this country and all of us have. Uh, and it's a there are issues that are still being discussed today. You know, the the matter of of uh, reparations is definitely uh, in the uh, the national discourse. So uh, we're still trying to come to terms with it, and we've got. Uh, white supremacist movements that are are growing so it's uh it's not just in the past it's very much with us still very much so i'll now shut up give my voice a, a rest and turn it over to you Thank you. That was really informative. I've taught about Harriet Tubman back in 1970 when I used to teach. Mm. But we didn't have that wealth of information that you provided today. Um, and it was really, really wonderful to have you fill in so many books uh, and crannies in your life. Um, one of the things, and I especially loved about um, bringing together uh, Harriet Tubman as a uh, as a uh, a modern or as a bodhisattva. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He could be linked, and I liked hearing about these other bodhisattvas. I remember you mentioning um, one other time recently about um, yeah, I have so many notes. Oh, yeah. Vizo. Yeah. So I'll be interested to learn more about him. I haven't read that book. Um, one of the books that I'm reading right now is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which was written last year. And, mm. um, it's really fascinating. One of the things she talks about um, is that no Africans were ever called black until they came to this country. Black is a new word. Um, right. That color designation, as white is, um, mm -hmm. since the United States put all that together. So it's a fascinating book cast. Mm. It's something I hope someday we can all see. Um, and that's all I'm going to say, but thank you. That was a wonderful talk. Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, Michael Mead, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Mead. He wrote an essay about that and how the whole notion of whiteness itself is really a recent invention by Europeans and how they've separated themselves from from other peoples and, and I mean race itself is is an invention but but you know what really struck me was um, I mean it struck me a hundred times in my life and I've been in education in urban district Cleveland for thirty some years and especially the last. 12 or I've done the counseling thing is I often get a student who's um, ashamed of their father, ashamed of males in their family. It might, it might even be a male student. Um, 
and um, African-American. And they're embarrassed about, oh, they're in trouble with the law or they don't have their act together or da, 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 da. And one of, one of the things I spend a lot of time with students like that talking about is, yeah, but the thing is, there's this long, long history of the white power structure purposely shattering the family structure of African-Americans, purposely doing that, strategic, strategically doing that. And, and, then, and also African-Americans, especially male African-Americans have been literally put outside the law and they're literally illegal beings. And then, so in order to get anything that's somewhat rightfully theirs, they, they literally had to do what the law would call stealing or doing illegal things. Mm -hmm. so you have this long, long, long history of being outside the law, being forced to operate outside the law, having a shattered family and being disconnected from um, either your wife or your kids or whatever. And just because slavery quotes technically ends in 1865 or whatever, or 1863 or whatever, that doesn't mean the habit and, 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 the, and the sociological reality of that ends with that. And then of course you get um, sharecropping and then you get this um, moving up to the north. And a lot of times it was the, the guy who would move up to the north leaving his family behind. And, and, and so, the, so there's this long, long history of needing to be outside the law, of needing to operate outside the law, of, of, of being, you know, having, living in the context of shattered family. And so that habit, which was actually a necessity, now it looks pretty, it may look ugly now, and it may look, and it might be counterproductive now, but, but that habit was, was and, and actually, um, it's amazing how the kids I talked to about with that, so appreciate that. So appreciate. So then I say, so you need to have some empathy for the for the for the males in your or the you know the males in your life or the males in your your past or whatever. It says I said yes, you know like somebody could say yeah that he that person needs to get their act together. That's you know da 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 da. Right. But, but on the other hand, we also have to be able to say yeah, but I I see where that comes from and and, and, and who could yeah. blame. But anyway. Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad you bring that up. And it's still very much uh, with us still. I mean, things like housing discrimination. You, you read about uh, how housing values across town are really uh, moving up, except, you know, on the east side in, in predominantly black neighborhoods. There, they're not go going up. And, you know, they, they're in those neighborhoods because there was a time and there's still discrimination, but because of laws, it's not as prevalent as it once was. But, you know, those were the only neighborhoods they could move into and, and get a loan for. And one area where it's still having an impact is the, uh, uh, for renters, uh, the fact that landlords can refuse to, to accept uh, Section 8 or any kind of government su subsidies for rent. So it's a way, an underhanded way of keeping uh, certain people outside of, of 
uh, certain neighborhoods. So that discrimination is still going on. And as a result, you know, for most people, you know, their home is one of their major sources of, of their wealth. And uh, that's been taken away from, from the black population just because of the, the uh, effects of, of housing discrimination, past and present. So yeah, I mean, there are just so many ways. Uh, Dean, thank you very much for this talk today. I, I had no knowledge of Harriet Tubman and her history and what she had done. And, and this was just a wealth of knowledge. You, you did an unbelievable amount of research to lay this out in front of all of us like this, and I really appreciate it. Oh. So, it just read a book. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an unbelievable amount of research. <laughs> I, I loved it. Um, I, I also wanted to say, uh, to spin off of Joe's comment, if, if anybody has not seen a documentary called The 13th, yeah. it's a grand summary of all of this. Yes, it is. Uh, and there was one thing in particular that came out, just one corner of all the many assets of that documentary, that amazed me. Our court system to this day, just like the prison for-profit prison system, yeah. the court system is sort of a for-profit system. I didn't realize this. In as much as the judges have all the incentive in the world while you're pleading your case to find you guilty so they can fine you and pay for their court costs because you pay for that. Now, they only get a certain amount of money and the rest comes from all the proceeds coming out of them finding people guilty. Yeah. And then if you don't have the money, they take your property. And, uh, and this goes on every single day. They find you guilty, <laughs> take your money, your property, and send you to, to a for-profit jail. And it's, yeah. it's just amazing how that whole system is run today. Oh, yeah. I asked um, one of the state senators that gave a talk at a church here in Cleveland last year when they showed, uh, or a couple years ago, at a showing of the 13th, if that actually still went on today. And he said, well, yeah, he said the courts in most cases all over the place, these simple mid-level courts operate like that. Right. So. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it's important to, to understand and realize all these ways that, you know, there's still oppression out there supported by the government at whatever level, local, on up through federal, all the levels. Hi, hi Dean. Uh, thank, thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to um, comment about, well, first of all, how how this uh, history is learning about it and studying it and reading it and you know listen or watch documentaries and um, uh, how, how it kind of sinks in more and more over time kind of like studying the Dharma how you know it's like oh wow I get a deeper and deeper appreciation 
and like enlightenment of the history of slavery and the suffering and uh, and realizing how or becoming more aware of, well, for example, how my education, my public education growing up in Middleburg Heights, Ohio, just really, really glossed over so much of this history. Right. Um, so, yeah, and how, you know, I lived in Harlem for a year or two back in 2013, 14, and, uh, Several days a week, I would pass through Harriet Tubman Square mm. on the way to the subway. Wow. And, um, you know, I'm sure I quickly Googled her one day and, <laughs> you know, like got the basics on who she was. But anyhow, th this was really helpful. So thank you. And I look for forward to, you know, learning more and um you know contributing to uh it, uh and helping and um the suffering or that is currently going on still in this country from racist white supremacist um, you know, viewpoints and activities that, you know, I don't know, I'm from a generation where I kind of thought it so, so naively that so much of this stuff is in the past and we've moved right. on. And We were the um, age of Aquarius, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The age of Aquarius. Wow. Yeah. So, and just feeling the weight of how much more work there is to do is, is heavy, but uh, it's certainly nothing like what Harriet Tubman had to endure. Amen. You know, the inspirational force that she can still be today. Wow. Yeah. 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 So we'd have a lot more enemy lines to cross. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So, thank you. Yeah. And that uh, the education piece to it. I mean, I remember when I returned to college in the early 70s after a couple of years in, in the Army, uh, uh, there was a, a requirement uh, of having a couple of Black Studies courses, which, uh, I mean, for me, since a history of jazz course, uh, was was part of what would satisfy that. So that was easy, obviously, I was going to do that. But then I took took uh, a course on Black literature and the narrative uh, uh, life of Frederick Douglass was one of the books that we, we read along with uh, Richard Wright's Native Son and James Baldwin and Gene Toomer. So that was really uh, a rich experience for me. I'm so grateful that they had that kind of a requirement. Uh, wow. So it's really, really definitely have a need for that. Uh, and yeah. now the Hispanic community is is also working to try to uh, 
to kind of follow down a, a similar path uh, with recognition for their contributions. So it's, it, it really, uh, because white privilege is, is uh, you know, so many people uh, pay the price for that. And the way one of one of the important ways to overcome that is to broaden our perspective from these different viewpoints, from from the black African American viewpoint, from the Hispanic viewpoint, from from the female viewpoint. All these different uh, uh, you know, segments of the population that uh, that were for for a long time and still are being oppressed. So, I mean, still, there's the Equality Act, which probably won't uh, pass in the Senate. There's the Equal Rights Amendment that's still, that's you know, still out there. Maybe, maybe someday, you know, fifty years later. <laughs> it just, I don't know. But yeah, you're right. We just keep at it. Keep at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just reading, you know, the book by um, Kimmerer, um, The ah. Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah. So I just got to the chapter where her daughter, she's Native American, um, anyway, um, her daughter is going to school and they're having her do the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Her daughter's oh, eight yeah. years old. Daughter's eight years old. Her daughter, her daughter sat down and refused to make the pledge. And then and then a bunch of other kids in the school stopped doing it. Yeah. And then in that same chapter, she goes through the um, what they do in the Onondaga tradition is this gratitude to the earth and gratitude to the trees and a gratitude to the rivers and a gratitude to the winds. And this and she says, "What we need is a pledge, a pledge of allegiance to interdependence, not, not, not." Amen. In it. And and, I, it, and just recognizing the silliness of the borders, the borders of you know of national borders, and anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that declaration. In fact, when I read that book a few years ago, I I brought that in with me on a Thursday night and, and included that in my Dharma talk that night. I was blown away by that. That's funny because when I was reading, I go, I'll bet he did because I know you I knew you had read it somebody. I said, I'll bet he used this. I sure did. <laughs> I'm always looking for stuff like that. So that was an easy one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful book. Braiding Sweetgrass. Highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. One of the best books I've read in the past few years. It's, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. As I like to say, it's one of the best Buddhist books I've read. And it's not even a Buddhist book, but that's what makes it <laughs> such a great Buddhist book. It's going beyond Buddha. <laughs> that's that's real Buddha nature. <laughs> it's so enjoyable to read. It almost feels indulgent. I mean, I, you pick it up. It's it's just it's a so it's so pleasurable to read on top of on top of it. It's, yeah.
hopefully she writes something else. I'd uh, be there waiting to grab it. I heard her interviewed on NPR a few weeks back. I think it was Terry oh. Gross. It was a very good interview. So, oh, I'll have to look into that. that. Thank oh, you. I Paul. didn't know that. Yeah. Thanks. The sun's maybe trying to peek out out there. <laughs> Paul knew that was the clue. <laughs> Keith's got you well trained. <laughs> May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. All right.